The book of Numbers chapter 11, we're going to be jumping around three particular sections. Uh, so our first section is going to be verses 4 through 6. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, for free. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Verses 10 through 16. Let's go there. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrances of their tents, then the Lord became very angry, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you treated your servant so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling child to a land that you promised an oath to their ancestors? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they come weeping to me and say, give us meat to eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you are going to treat me, put me to death at once. For if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my misery. So the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their place there with you. Now, verses 24 to 29. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders and when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for the blessed grace that is on each one of our lives, enabling us to be in this room together this morning. We pray that that same spirit that has brought us here would open up our minds, open up our hearts, open up our very souls to receive the word of life that you'd want to speak into us, challenge us, comfort us, correct us, call us. We ask for the glory of the name of Jesus. And everybody said, and everybody in the room said, amen. So this sermon this morning, I'm calling Risking Life and Limb. Knowing that we were going to have some younger people in the room, I did want to go to a store and buy like prosthetic body parts, um, maybe a hand, a foot, some eyeballs. 
but I knew Pastor Brent was going to be back this Sunday, and I was chastened by the thought of that, so I have no props. I'm sorry. I thought about bringing like a salt shaker, but that's just lame, so I didn't bother, because I didn't want to insult you. This sermon for me this morning, honestly, as I prepared it, I came under quite a fair bit of conviction and felt the Holy Spirit preaching to me um, as I tried to get ready to bring these words to you. Um, If you're younger, I apologize in advance that I'm not that entertaining, so I'll try my best um, to make you laugh, smile, or just not fall asleep. Or maybe you should fall asleep, I don't know. Um, I want you to think about something for a moment, just as a little bit of a thought experiment, if we could begin. And I'm going to give you about 10 seconds to think of one particular food item. If if you're not willing to cooperate with me, this is going to be a disaster. So I'm really, I'm putting myself out there this morning. I want you to know that in advance. I want you to think of one food item that you absolutely would not eat no matter who put it in front of you, no matter what the stakes were, one thing that it might turn your stomach. Maybe it's something that your mom makes. I don't know. But if there's something you could think of as, I absolutely would not eat that. When you get that food in your mind and you can picture it, would you just raise your hands for me? I'll wait. Just Okay, now do me a favor. Would everybody say the name of that food out loud together? Thank you. Perfect. Okay. Now... We're going, to do, we're going to flip that experiment, and I'm going to ask you, for all of you who are on death row and you're getting one last meal, my wife and I recently celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. Yes. And I just want you to know that I hear that as a praise of thanksgiving to God, because I would not be married without him, for sure. And that's not a joke. It's the truth. Um, we decided to go out fancy for our anniversary, so we went to Mahogany. And we're looking at the menu, and there's wonderful selection on the menu, and the waitress comes over, and of course, they're like the best ever, like the way they pronounce everything, and it's just, and she's like, would you like to hear our specials this evening? Well, of course we would. And she says a couple things, you know, whatever, I'm not interested, I came for steak, right? And then she's like, oh, and we have our trio. I'm like, tell me more about this. I'm Trinitarian. I would like to hear about this trio that you have. I had my collar on and everything. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. (laughs) And uh, she's like, a full-cut filet mignon with lobster and crab legs, of course, all de-shelled. I'm like, shut up, stop talking, and take my money. That is what I'm eating. She's like, it's for two people. I'm like, it's all right. I've got this. (laughs) She told me the price. I said, we're splitting it. I I know I could have handled it on my own, but that's, anyway, that's how I got here. So you have this food. I don't know if it's lobster, if it's steak, if it's uh, whatever. I don't know. Get it in your head and think of, I want you to close your eyes and imagine the smell and the sizzle or whatever it is that's going on at this plate in front of you. When you have it, lift up a holy hand without wrath or doubting. When you have it in your mind, I'm looking for hands all around the room. Hands going up everywhere, everybody. Now I want you to say the name of that food out loud right now. Okay. Now here's the thing. 
That first question about the one thing that you hate, you notice like there was confusion and nobody said the same thing. In our story in Numbers, everybody would have said manna at the same time. Everybody would have said manna. Everybody was in some level discontented. But I want to draw your attention to something really quick. And it's an R word. It's the word rabble. It's the word rabble. It says in verse 4 of Numbers 11, the rabble among them had a strong craving. Look at the next phrase. And the Israelites also wept again. Do you? I, I have to confess, as a person who's done graduate work and read a whole ton of books, for some reason it never really dawned on me that it wasn't just Israelites wandering through the wilderness. Let me feel dumb all by myself. I was hoping some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I... <laughs> I'm like, okay, rabble and Israelites. The, the rabble here is speaking to non-Jewish people who tagged along with the Israelites going out of Egypt and are wandering through the wilderness with them. Anybody besides the pastor not know this was true until this week. I, I, I got a couple hands and I appreciate the love. Thank you. I was like, what? Rabble. God did not send Moses to the rabble. God did not work miracles for the rabble. God didn't part the Red Sea for the rabble. He did it for the children of Abraham. Now, here's what's interesting. The rabble become instigators of this trouble in the wilderness, and it got me thinking, I wonder how many people are in our lives that are really rabble. And I'm not talking about their value existentially before God. So please don't under, misunderstand what I'm saying. In other words, there are people who are in our lives unintentionally. We have relationships that are coincidental. And I'm here to tell you at the beginning and outset of the message, don't give the rabble in your life a voice. Don't let the people who just happen to tag onto your life and trying to reap the benefits of the good things that God, are do God is doing in your life, but the Holy Spirit has not connected you. The Holy Spirit has not made a relationship for you. The Holy Spirit hasn't led you into fellowship. Don't let those kind of people speak into your life because they will cultivate angst in your soul. They're not people of covenant. What I'm not saying is have nothing to do with them. Did you hear me? I'm not saying don't have anything to do with them. I'm saying don't let, give them a voice. Don't give them influence. Don't give them authority. How much angst, how much weeping is done at the doors of our tents because we have let rabble have a voice in our life. In other words, people who don't understand the covenant God has with you, people who don't understand the nature of Yahweh are stirring up things in your soul that are not fit to who you are. Please hear me. Some of this is common sense, proverbial wisdom. We have to be discreet in our relationships. We have to know how to discern the rabble in our life. And I'm not saying those people don't have value. I'm saying they shouldn't have a voice. I was waiting for an amen. I got an mm. Don't give them a voice. That's free and you can take that with you. But here's what I want you to notice. What does it say? We remember the fish. Memory is a complicated thing. Just notice how confused they are in their own sentences. If we only had meat 
to eat. And then they start talking about fish. Sorry, friends, fish ain't meat. And all the carnivores in the room said, hello, fish ain't meat. But memory is a complicated thing. A failure to remember can be trouble. Think about this, Psalm 106. If you want to turn there, this might be some stuff you might want to underline in your Bible. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our ancestors, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wonderful works. Look at this. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. There is a way in which a failure to remember is the seedbed of rebellion. A failure to remember what God had done for them was the direct cause of the rebellion in their life. Go down a little bit further. What does it say in verse 13? They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Here's another one. Forgetfulness, a failure to remember, will also birth impatience in us. Does anybody besides me struggle with waiting on the Lord? Struggle waiting at the drive-thru because they took too long to process your order. Somebody. Hello. Think about it. Our failure to remember is going to cultivate rebellion and impatience. Listen, memory is an important thing. And there is a type of remembrance that is a holy remembrance. And it's like a spiritual discipline that keeps both eyes open on the past. Let me say that again. There is a holy remembrance that will keep both eyes open on the past. In other words, there's no cover-ups needed here. There's an open fullness and honesty about the past. We don't have to hide the fact that uh, the, the bad things. Because the worse we were in our past, the better God's deliverance was in our past. I'll wait because that was a good chance to say amen right there. The worse my situation was in my past, the better God looks. And when I understand grace, I can have a holy remembrance of my past. The problem is, there's a carnal remembrance. And I think that's what we're reading about here. And that is a remembrance that conveniently, can I say selfishly, edits the past. And it's got one eye open to the past, Conveniently focusing on all the good things that were in the past and overlooking all the problems in the past. So what do we see the children of Israel saying here? We, we had fish for free. Well, was it really free? They didn't swipe your debit card, but you were a slave. Was it really free? Come on. So when you have this carnal remembrance, you look back over your past in ways that fuel your narrative of the way you think it should have been, not the way it really was. So what happens is, hello, the last job you had was the best job. Oh, you wish you could have had that job and it was so convenient because it was close to the house, not realizing that that job worked your hours so bad you never saw your family. That job had such an unhealthy culture that everybody was backbiting and stabbing one another. And you forget all of that stuff because you're tired of commuting. Oh, that last church we were at. 
<laughs> Man, those services were done in an hour. This preacher come from New York, and he's just carrying on, making us say amen and all that. He's sweating in front of everybody. What's going on with that? I love that. You forget that the other church was dead as death could possibly be, and there was clicks, and there was division, and there was gossip. But, man, you got out on time. How convenient. Sitting at the dinner table eating that food that you just said you don't like, looking across at your husband saying, man, I remember that boy I dated in college. Man, he had some abs on him. Man, that guy, he was so funny. Oh, he paid attention to me. He bought me flowers and chocolates all at the same time. And you forget he was manipulative and he was a flirt and he cheated on you and everything else that he did. But that unholy, carnal capacity to remember things that conveniently fuel our narrative. They fuel our discontent with the way things are. And distorts the past. That's what's happening here. When you can look back on slavery and, and, and get nostalgic, something is deeply wrong. But that's the way memory works in us. The discontent with our present inspires us to distort our past. You see, holy remembrance it gives birth to praise and thanksgiving. I'll give you an example. I'm going to show you how old I am, you might remember the song. When it said, when I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I, because love lifted me. See, that's holy remembrance. It doesn't distort the fact that I was stained and I was sinking and I was a mess. Because in the midst of that sinking problem, God showed up and love picked me up. You see that? When I get into this sort of carnal remembrance, it leads to weeping. It leads to complaining. And here's the worst thing of all. It leads to indifference in the face of God's supernatural work. When I don't know how to think about my past, it will distort my present so that I take what God is doing and make it a bad thing. This is a sort of unholy nostalgia that will cause us to neglect the supernatural of our present. You see, what do they say? All we have is this manna to eat. The Hebrew word manna means what is it? But Hebrew is a funny language. It's hard for us English-speaking folks to wrap our minds around it. And one of the other alternative definitions of it is not what is it, but who is it? And isn't it interesting that in John chapter 6, when Jesus has fed the 5,000, what does he say? He says, your ancestors ate bread in the wilderness, this stuff. He said, but I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. See, this scares me. i got to be honest with you. This is where I'm wrestling with this text and this story today. Is that I feel like I'm so prone to this sort of carnal, unholy, nostalgic remembrance that I'm scared that I'm missing Jesus right in front of me. 
I'm scared that the sacrament of the present is being overlooked because of a distorted view of the past. I had a hard time with this text all week. So I sat in Chris Green's chair last night with my laptop and pretended I was him, hoping that the anointing would carry over. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he says that these stories were written for us. This book of Numbers stuff, it was written for us. If you're reading it and say, why should I be reading Numbers? He says these things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing, this is the verse. If you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. In other words, let's not look at the Israelites and say, oh, you know what? That was really dumb. They were slaves. They shouldn't think that way. They had manna. They shouldn't think that way. I felt the Holy Spirit saying, Mark, you're doing it all the time. And notice what it does. It brings Moses to the breaking point. Isn't it interesting how sin exposes our limitations and our weaknesses? Let me, let me say that differently. Isn't it amazing how the sin in other people exposes our own limitations? Anybody here married and want to wave a hand at me? Anybody single want to wave a hand of praise? Come on. There's nothing that will expose your limits and your weaknesses like getting into covenant with someone and moving into the same house. I get smattering of amens. I, I'm trying to, trying to help. What does Moses say? He says, this is too much for me. I'm too weak for this. I can't bear this up. This is what sin will do. And that's the blessing. That's the hidden blessing of sin is that it brings us to the end of ourselves in ways that nothing else will. And what happens then is suddenly Moses finds himself not able to bear the burden on his own. So God says, yeah, remember your father-in-law? We had a plan for this. It's called getting elders. Can we do it now? So he calls these 70 elders. Here's the beautiful thing. Our limitations are not things we need to be embarrassed of. Our limitations are opportunities for other people to come into our life. Our limitations are not a point of embarrassment. They are a point of humanity. We are not embarrassed of our limitations because our limitations create spaces. There's no strength there because somebody else's strength needs to be there. You understand what I'm saying? I'm strong in this space. All right? But Joe, come up here for a minute. I'm not strong in this space. I need Joe to stand in that space because I can't stand in that space and stand in this space. Hello? Right? Paul, come and stand in this space next to me. I can't stand in that space and stand in this space. I need Paul to stand in that space. So my limitations, the fact that I can only occupy one space, actually creates space for other people to be a part of my life in ways that I never could otherwise experience. If I could occupy that space, there's no room for Paul, there's no room for Joe. You understand that? You can sit down. What happens here is God says, you need the breadth 
of these 70 elders, but here's the deal. They need the same spirit you've got. Listen, the people of God can't function with divergent spirits in leadership. The, the body of Christ cannot function if it's just going to all be on one person. But we also can't function if everybody's got their own spirit they're bringing to the game. And so what happens is this ties us in to this amazing story of prophecy before the spirit fell in Pentecost. 70 people registered, arguably 68 show up, 68 start prophesying. And two of them that were at Bedside Baptist slash the gathering space. I've been waiting to say that joke for 14 months. Y'all better get yourself in the sanctuary. Isn't that funny? The church is called sanctuary. None of y'all want to be in here. Anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you're laughing because I'm laughing. It's therapy. Um, right? That's what we talked about, Brent. I, I lay on his couch and he talks me through all this. Why are they prophesying in the gathering space? This shouldn't be allowed. And I agree, Joshua. It actually says that Joshua was red in the face. He's hot. He's jealous. Sounds a lot like John in the gospel, doesn't it? John comes to Jesus in the gospel reading this morning, and what does he say? He says, someone, doesn't even give him a name. He doesn't have a name. Someone's out there casting out demons in your name, and he's not part of our group. Shut him down. What does Jesus say? The most annoying verse that Jesus ever said. Whoever's not against us is for us. No, it's not possible. Jesus, that's not logical, but he said it. Whoever's not against us is for us. And this is where a lot of us get tripped up and we forget the purpose of the power God gives us is always bigger than our moment. The purpose of the power God has put in your life is bigger than you. See, in other words, God's not calling 70 elders and giving them a spirit and having them prophesy because he's trying to start a school of the prophets. What happens in the next chapter? He sends spies into Canaan. See, Joshua thought God was setting up a prophetic ministry. God was trying to move a nation into their destiny. One's a lot bigger than the other. John thinks that Jesus has started a traveling band of, of exorcists and healers. And John doesn't realize this is bigger than healings and exorcism. I'm going to the cross to throw down Satan. I'm going to the cross to institute a kingdom. And frankly, if you're not opposing me, you're with me on this journey. I have a gift in my life, and it's called ruining scripture verses. What does Jesus say in response to John? Well, truly, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. And then he says this. He says, if you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, who are the little ones? Someone who's casting out a demon. 
who doesn't belong in the group. Sorry. You see, we've always read that text to say that the little ones refers to the child that Jesus brought up into the group earlier. It's not really reading it too faithfully. What is he saying? He's saying the little ones, the ones that don't have a name that are on the outside of our club, but are still doing my work, are still advancing my kingdom. If you try to stop them from doing that work, it would be better off if you had a millstone tied around your neck than to shut down their ministry. Isn't it interesting that the disciples are still hung up over this whole exorcism thing? You might remember the story in Luke chapter 10. Isn't this interesting that Jesus sends out 70 in Luke chapter 10? How many elders did Moses gather? 70. Luke tells us that they go out and they have an amazing time. They have church everywhere they go. They're having revival. It's breaking out. Services are going for three hours. Everywhere they go. And when they come back, they come back with joy. And what do they say in verse 17? Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. Same exact thing that the little one in Mark's text is doing. This is a big deal. The demons are listening to us. And Jesus said, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you the authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Can I tell you that whether it's Joshua and the folks in Numbers complaining about Eldad and Medad, whether it's John complaining about a nameless little one in Mark chapter 9, we have a propensity to shrink down and make small the power of God when in fact there is a huge project and it's at hand and God is working far beyond what we could imagine and he's calling us into that, which is why Jesus says famously, if your hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off. But look at this phrase. For it is better for you to enter life. Isn't that odd? They're alive. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to be cast into the fires of hell. I think Jesus is envisioning a kingdom. He's envisioning an age that is so grand, that is so far beyond what we think is good right now, that not having meat in the wilderness doesn't even really bother us. People prophesying, even though they're in the wrong room, doesn't even really bother us. The random exorcist who goes around and wasn't at the planning meeting doesn't really bother us. And friends, losing your hand or your foot or your eye doesn't even really bother us because the life that God is calling us to, the life that we're about to enter into, transcends all of those things. You see, the hands, the feet, and the eyes, these are the most precious parts of our personality. This is what Jesus is going after. Your hands, this is your productivity, 
This is your creativity. This is your power. He's saying, cut that off. Your feet, this is your lifestyle. This is your decisions. This is where you go, how you get there. Your eyes, the window to your very soul, your personality. He's saying, you don't need any of that stuff where we're going. Roads where we're going, you don't need eyes. Think about it. What is Jesus telling us? Discipleship is difficult. It demands sacrifice. If you thought you could get through this untouched, unscathed, and with all of your appendages in place, you're probably mistaken. Your personality might take a hit. Your productivity might take a hit. Your creativity might take a hit in this discipleship thing. What else is he telling us? Notice that Jesus talks about giving up things that aren't sinful. Isn't that interesting? I would never have said this. I would have said, if your hand causes you to sin, stop sinning. The hand is good. I made it. I gave it to you. Notice Jesus is advising cutting off and removing good things that God gave you. Throw the mic and go home. Cut off the good stuff I gave you. Because even the good stuff that you have now is not worthy to be compared to the great stuff that's coming. And if the good stuff is complicating it anyway, get rid of it. Please note, Jesus is saying we cannot drift through life just doing whatever we like to do and assuming there's no consequences. There is a Gehenna, there is a fire for us all. And I think Jesus' point here is if we're not willing to risk a limb, we run the risk of missing out on the life that he's called us to. If we're so concerned about preserving our limbs, we'll prevent ourselves from entering into the abundant life that he has. In other words, would we be willing to go backward to get the melons, the cucumbers, the onions, the garlic, and the fish when we could have had the grapes of Canaan that took two men to carry? Are you going to let yourself today be defined by your present or by your future? Are you going to let yourself be defined by everything that's good, bad, or indifferent about your now? Or are you going to let yourself be shaped by the future that God has for you? This is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there's a kingdom so big, so grand, so transcendent that you'd be willing to gouge out your eye in order to flourish in it. This quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer sums it up well. They who are mature, who desire to be defined by the present, fall subject to themselves, to themselves, to death, and to guilt. It is only out of the future that the present can be lived. N.T. Wright tells a story about a college professor living in London during World War II. And as you know, the battle for London was fierce and the bombing was intense and his building was bombed and everything he had was destroyed, but he got out alive. He had some friends who were working at Oxford, so he took the train up to Oxford and when he got there, he went to a clothing shop 
And when this professor walked into the clothing shop, the only clothes he had were the ones on his back. And so he started picking things out and a couple pairs of pants and some shirts and other garments. And as he brought everything up to the counter, the cashier looked at him and she said, sir, don't you know there's a war on? And as you can imagine, if anybody knew there was a war on, it was that man. He understood something bigger going on than that woman could ever understand. And I think so many of us are like that woman at the cash register who have forgotten that there's a war on. We've forgotten. God is up to something so much bigger in your life personally and so much bigger in this community you call sanctuary. And I'm telling you, live from that future, not from this present. Live from that future, not from this present. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I ask for your help. On behalf of me and everyone in the room who shares this need, that we would have such a clear sense of your good future for us, that we would be willing to risk life and limb now. I pray, oh God, that for every person who's been tempted to complain or has been complaining about their marriage, about their job, about their health, about their church, about their neighborhood, about their friendships, anybody who's been looking at the manna and complaining, I pray that you'd have mercy on us all. Have mercy on us all. Any one of us who's shrunk down your work and made it super small, have mercy on us. Help us open our eyes to see. I pray we go out of here today with hope, with expectation that what we're in right now is connected to something so much bigger, so much grander, so much greater. Give us strength to walk that out faithfully, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.